Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. You've heard us say it before. The black vote is powerful. And for decades, we've witnessed the lens that donkeys and elephants will go to sway the black electorate in their favor. But when the elections are all said and done, what are we left with? What promises have been kept? And who's really working to serve our needs? I'm Jay with Push Black, and in the season three finale of Black History Year, we're examining the actions we must take to reclaim our power in the political ecosystem. We couldn't think of anyone better than Candace Hollingsworth to navigate this conversation. Candace was the youngest and first black mayor of Hyattsville, Maryland in its 135 year history. After serving her community in this role for five years, she made the difficult choice to step down and she formed an organization that will soon become an independent political party. That's right. Candace now serves as a co-national chair of our black party a group that exists to advance a black political agenda and address the needs of our people. We deserve better, y'all. So as we wrap a season that's been focused on fighting forward, let's talk about what we deserve and the political actions we must take to go get it. Candace, what does black liberation look like to you? Black liberation to me is more about what it feels like. It's what I don't have to worry about. I was telling a friend of mine not too long ago, actually, they were asking if I felt that my kids would want to get into the work that I do if they wanted to get into politics. And I said, you know what? I got into politics because I wanted to make the world different for my kids. I hope that my kids don't feel like that responsibility is all on them. And I think the freedom to have to choose when we exert our power and when we show up in spaces that are not necessarily for us, that we get to choose when we do that, I think that is liberation. That it doesn't feel like a constant and daily mandate for us. Doesn't mean that the work is ever going to stop, but at least we have a moment to rest and to think and to be ourselves. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're hoping that the work that you and others are doing will get to a point where it's not as urgent for future generations. Right. Although I think in the ways that our communities are built, I think we'll always have some element of that, but not for survival. And right now it feels like it's for survival. I would like it to be the work that we do is a value add. I like that. So let's get into it. How is the work that you're doing currently contributing to your vision of Black liberation and political freedom? I ran for elected office. It was never on my list of things that I wanted to do with my life. And I got in politics because I wanted to make sure that my kids grew up in a community that they felt 
they were safe, that they felt that they could return to after, you know, they go away from for college or whatever, come back. Look, I always have a place at home. And part of that is because my personal story and my personal relationship with Memphis, how I wish I were home. And I, you know, I definitely honor all of those folks who stayed home or returned home. But that wasn't my path. And I want selfishly for my kids to be able to say, you know, Hyattsville or Prince George's County is always home for me. And as I've been doing this work, I've realized, as mayor at least, I realize that my kids certainly have that peace of mind right here at home. And I asked my son when it was shortly after Ahmaud Arbery was murdered, I asked my son, you know, if he felt safe. And he said, I feel safe here, but not necessarily everywhere else. And when faced with trying to grow our Black Party and still, you know, completing my term as mayor, I made the really difficult decision to step down as mayor because I said, I want to devote my time to growing this organization because what good is it that I create this safe space for my kid right here at home, but his world of safety is limited only to where he grew up. And it's important to make spaces outside of Hyattsville, outside of Maryland, outside of areas that we would consider liberal or progressive enclaves, that we extend that work further. And with our Black Party, we are trying to do just that by making sure that local governments, so your city councils, your school boards, and someone even mentioned on an interview I was on the other day, even your coroner (laughs) in some places where that's an elected position, where those positions at local levels are passing policies and acting in a way that is in support of Black life, is in defense of Black life, and ensures that we are improving the quality of life for Black people across this country and not just in those areas where the chosen few are. Can you tell me about Hydesville? What is it like specifically as it relates to Black folks? <laughs> Hydesville is an interesting place. I moved here in December 2009, and I said, I only moved here because it's where we could afford to buy a house. So I knew really nothing about the city before we got here. And when we got here, bought our house, someone rang on our doorbell and was like, we bought you pumpkin bread. And I was like, who does this? This actually happens in real life. (laughs) And so I was like, okay, that's really small town-ish. You know, it's a small town, small city, right at 20,000 residents three and a half square miles. But in those three and a half square miles, we have two metro stations. You can get to DC in less than 10 minutes. So it's a lot of amenities. The demographics of the city is like third or third or third, black, white, and Hispanic. But it wasn't always like that. Hyattsville is one of many municipalities in Prince George's County or many cities in Prince George's County that are relics of sundown towns. You won't necessarily find Hyattsville on the books as a sundown town, but for all intents and purposes, the way that it behaved when you look at land records and deeds, the city functioned very much like a sundown town. In fact, one of the neighboring cities is a documented sundown town. Real quick, can you just give our audience's description of what is a sundown town? Sure. A sundown town is a city or a place where Black folks are not expected to be after dark. You come in to work or to do business, mostly it's working for a white family, and you leave. 
if you're caught after dark, it's kind of like it's expected that you might be harassed, beat, or arrested for being in those spaces. And so its behavior is very much like a sun downtown. And so think about that in the context of this new demographic with its first Black mayor, me, being elected in 2015. And so now the city's residents consider themselves to be very progressive, very liberal. But what comes with that is a lack of understanding about how that history relates to the lived experiences of Black people today and how, especially for those who lived in the city for years, and that memory that they have about the city at at those times, how that influences the ways that they engage with government, the ways that they think the government is supposed to respond to them, and even their expectations of what the government is supposed to do. And so my approach to governing was really to make sure that we started from a place of, look, everybody no matter where you live, who you are, my goal is that this city serves everyone in the way that they need. Before we started really talking about equity on a regular basis in in local governments, that was really what we were trying to do and trying to achieve here. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. So talk to me about the transition. You said you had to make a seemingly tough decision to step down as mayor and to do a different type of political work. Can you tell me about that decision and what that transition was like? We decided to start our Black Party in the summer of 2020. I think at the same time when so many people across the country are trying to figure out exactly where they fit in this, I'll call movement, although it's we know that the issues that we're addressing are not new. So the movement is not new. It's taking on a different momentum right now. And I thought that as an elected official, it was my responsibility to make sure that I looked at what role does policy play right now? Because there's certainly protests, but how does protest influence policy? And as local elected officials, and especially as Black elected officials, We felt it was necessary for us to make sure that we created a space that Black elected officials held themselves accountable and also that created a space for residents or, you know, Black folks to hold our elected officials accountable uh, for delivering on the policies that our communities need. And doing that at the same time as trying to figure out as a city, how do we respond to COVID? How do we make sure that our residents have what they need? This was in June of 2020. So that was like right at the moment where we're still trying to figure all this stuff out. And you always want to do your best. And I decided pretty quickly 
probably in July or August, I said, this is not sustainable for me, you know, and especially when we get into the conversations about mental health and rest, I was able to quickly recognize that that wasn't sustainable for me to continue to try to do both if I wanted to do them both well, because our communities deserve someone who's able to do the job well at their full capacity or their full strength. And so that's why stepping down was a difficult decision for me because I loved my job as mayor. I loved it. And to no longer do that work and devote it to something else entirely was a big decision for me. So I want to make sure we have a clear understanding of what our Black Party is. Is it currently a political party? Is it an organization? Summarize exactly what it is now and then what you all are planning to do with it in the future. So when we first started, folks, you know, you, you know, keyboard gangsters, we, we are tough on people when they first start and we don't quite understand what they are. And we, you know, the name says party because that's what we aspire to be is a party. But people are like, well, you should have named it something else if it's not technically a party yet. So to answer the typical questions, folks say, am I going to see our black party on the ballot right now? No. But here's the thing about political parties in this country. Political parties all start as political action committees or, as you often hear in conversations, PACs. So our Black Party is a PAC. Um, We are a PAC that raises money to help support candidates and or policies or both that help advance a Black agenda for Black America. And our goal in order to become a party that's recognized, where we run candidates, where we are on a ballot, we have to do work in multiple states to demonstrate that we are getting membership, that we have activity, and that we are engaged in political activity primarily. And so what we are doing right now is why you may see us talk about our state directors. We have state directors in seven states now where their sole purpose is to grow and develop membership in those states to help identify candidates, help support candidates, and also push policies at the local levels where the majority of Black folks are so that we can get to a point where we are able to be a classified party and have a candidate on a ballot. For a lot of folks, this sounds like speaking a a foreign language. (laughs) So, Are you able to provide any context for any of the history around similar types of initiatives from Black folks that sprung out of our our lived conditions? Yeah, the the idea of an independent Black political party is not new. For one, when we started, we also know that the desire to have an independent Black political party has been an undercurrent for years. And I would say we could probably go back or reference the Niagara movement as probably one of the very earliest predecessors of a Black independent political party. Going forward through the 60s and 70s to 1972, where there was a big Black political convention and assembly in Gary, Indiana. And at that assembly is where there was a very contentious discussion about who the assembly should support for president. And that was when Shirley Chisholm was running. And so then moving forward from that assembly, they were developing these kind of like chapters 
of political assemblies across the country. And their goal was very similar, almost exactly the same. And if you look at some of the documents from that time, it is heartwarming, but also infuriating to see that the language and the needs and, and the demands are so very much the same from 1972 to 2020. And so what we saw from 72 to 80 was this mobilization statewide in different states to build and move towards building a political party. That party that was formed in 1980 was the National Black Independent Political Party. You may be familiar with Manning Marable. He was one of the leaders of that party for years. It did not last long. It lasted about six years. And there have been different iterations of political parties, whether they were state level, like we're talking about Mississippi Freedom Party with my favorite lady, Fannie Lou Hamer. But that was still within the context of Democratic Party. We have different iterations of that across decades. But the thing that is common in all of them, unfortunately, is that they have not lasted long. And when people ask, you know, especially in the moment 2020, when the urgency is there, the need is there, and, you know, the demand is high, people want to know, okay, what we're doing, what we're doing, we're going to move to next. Everybody's ready to roll. And when you're building an organization, If you don't grow deliberately, if you don't build with intention and have a very clear objective at stake, you will lose. And so we're trying to build with that in mind, to grow in a way that allows us to say that our Black Party is the party that was able to stay alive and endure so that Black folks always have a political party that is keeping the interests of Black people at the center. There is an argument that says that independent parties or third parties do more harm than good. What is your response to that? The response to that, I think, is one that many times that notion comes from a place where we just always expect to get the short end of the stick. And it reminds me of when I ran for an office in 2018. It would be considered a higher office because the, their scope of responsibility covered more areas. I was running for a county council position and I lost, but I went in to that role. I was challenging an incumbent because that incumbent was not doing a good job for our community. And I went in with two objectives. One was to either A, win. And I knew that I had the ability to do the job at the level that we needed, or B, that person would get better because they recognize that, oh, I I can't sit and just, you know, wing it for four more years because there are clearly folks who are ready to take this job away from me. And I think when it comes to third parties or factions, whether they're actual parties or not, that are basically making the voices of folks who are not typically consulted or who are typically taken for granted known and acknowledging that there is real organizing power around it. I think that makes the system as we know it bend a little bit more to our will. To look at it from the perspective of saying, oh, it's just going to make it so that this candidate is not going to win. That's assuming that that candidate is the one that we want, that them in their current form 
is planning to do what we need. And that's not always the case. When you organize and you demonstrate electoral power, meaning the power to get people to the voting booth and make a choice or not, that tells a candidate, ah, okay, these are folks that I need to listen to. I need to at least figure out how to get my policy positions in order. And I want to also take a step back to recognize that for our Black Party, we view the federal work. So the, your presidents, your senators and U.S. representatives, that's the cherry on the top. The real work and the real organizing and the, and the places where we can really make the most difference are in our local communities, where in many cases, with the exception of large metropolitan areas, in many cases, the people who lead those communities, the people who run for office in those areas are actually not partisan at all. And so having an organization like our Black Party that is there not just to push them towards the policies that we need, but also to help nurture the conversation and shape the dialogue around what's needed for Black communities is really important. Because it's not just saying, hey, I'm going to run as an Our Black Party candidate. It is also running as an Our Black Party candidate, but more importantly, I'm running with the values of Our Black Party and the policy priorities of Our Black Party at the center of everything that I'm doing. So in your opinion, do you think Black politicians largely have the best interest of the community in mind or the best interest of the party in mind? I like to believe that Black politicians have the interests of the community in mind. I like to believe that. But I have seen how politics works. And there comes a time when politicians become self-interested and they want to be the seat of power. And they make decisions and concessions many times on the backs of the communities that push them to office in the first place. I think about where I am in Prince George's County, which is most times when people hear about Prince George's County, they think of one of two things. They either think, oh, that's the wealthiest predominantly Black county in the country, or they think about Kevin Durant and basketball <laughs> and something in the water. It's one of two things or both. <laughs> but you think about a county like Prince George's County where my kids are growing up, they see Black leadership everywhere. They see it everywhere. I mean, from the county executive down to the school board members. But yet we are still talking about underperforming schools, still having communities where senior residents are trying to figure out why the potholes aren't filled, why the trash cans aren't replaced, why are my services decreasing, but my taxes are going up. And you would expect that some things are not a topic of conversation when we are the ones in charge, and yet they are. And so I can't say that while I know that what I believe drives Black politicians into public service is the community, because we like to keep people there and because, you know, we're like, oh, that's, that's that person, we definitely try not to challenge each other. We end up over time with politicians who become comfortable and become themselves status quo. And we have to also get comfortable with challenging that without thinking that challenging the Black politician 
or the black elected official or the black leader is somehow being a traitor to our communities. That means we need to do more work of building future black leaders and instilling a culture of leadership and service in all of us so that there's always somebody ready to take that space. So you all started our Black Party in 2020. And in 2020, there was also a young upstart politician named Kanye West that came in. (laughs) uh, And he was critical of the Black community's allegiance to certain political parties. I'm interested in your opinion. What was he right about? What was he wrong about, in your opinion? He's absolutely right about our allegiance to it. But our allegiance to Democratic Party doesn't mean that then you now become foolish puppets for the other party, especially when the leader of the party at the time, being the president, was the person that it was. What he's right about and what would have been more helpful is kind of doing what I was mentioning earlier, talking about our interests the things that we experience in our communities have very little to do with Democrat or Republican. We are often talking about things that just make our lives better. We're talking about, do our kids have a better place to go to school? Can we travel through our community safely? Are we able to purchase home and ensure that that's an investment that's going to last for the next generation? Can we get a loan? That's not political. I mean, of course, for other folks, it's political. But for us, it's not political. And yet, we don't have anyone or any organization that we could say, this is what we want. (laughs) This is what we need. What is your response to that outside of a presidential election or a presidential race? And it's beyond time for that. And so he's absolutely right in that, you know, we have had a blind allegiance that needs to stop. But I think the alternative that he picked is not the right one. So talk to us about our Black Party's political agenda. What is that rooted in? Are there any key principles? Yeah. So the agenda that we've adopted as a framework, so a foundation for what we're doing is the Black to the Future Action Fund, Black Agenda 2020. And that was a result to do a Black census a couple of years prior to that to find out what were the issues that were top of mind for Black people and Black communities that they felt would make them feel powerful in this country. And so that's you know powerful in different areas, whether it's the economy, whether it's communities, in the electoral system, in healthcare, whatever that might be. And so we've used that as a framework to help guide us, one, in how we think about policy and helping Black elected leaders who are members of our Black Party to craft policy, but also how we shape our positions on different issues. So looking at it through the lens of, okay, what does the Black agenda say about this? Or what would viewing it through the lens of the Black agenda mean? How would that shape our position? And we are starting from a place that, okay, or beginning a place where this is a start. And then there are so many other components of this that would be beneficial for Black folks. Like when we talk about the job guarantee program, universal basic income, for example, 
some of those pro- programs and initiatives, student loan cancellation, which is part of it, but those are initiatives that may not necessarily be at the moment embedded within the existing Black agenda, but we know that the impact on Black communities is far greater in a positive way if they were to be passed than they would be on any other. Um, And so we are trying to approach our work leading with Black Agenda at the center because all of us, you know, any of us who have been elected, we know that there are times where what the Black agenda demands might be at odds with what we a position we might have taken. And if as leaders, if as members and elected leaders of our Black, we are to push an agenda, we have to make sure that we are aligned with that agenda in all areas. That doesn't mean, however, that we assume that all Black folks agree on every single part of the agenda. Because let's be honest, not everybody is sitting around a table talking about policy all day long. But we do know, and I think we can say very easily, that all Black folks want Black folks to be able to live and prosper. And so while one issue might not be top of mind for me, if there's a segment of our community that needs it, and it would make their lives incredibly easier and better and have that feeling of liberation, then it's, in my opinion, it's my responsibility and my obligation to make sure that we're able to achieve that. Are there any examples of local Black politics that you look to or admire in terms of the Black community and Black politicians working together for the best interest of Black people specifically? So I have a past and a present, if that's okay. For sure. Um, The past for me is, and this is probably going to be a bit controversial, but Marion Barry. And that is something that I've come to learn and appreciate as an adult. My first understanding of Marion Barry was as a, what, nine-year-old, 10-year-old or something like that, watching the news and my parents saying, oh, they didn't call them them smoking crack. (laughs) (laughs) And I knew that was a problem. And from that point on, especially not growing up in Washington, D.C., from that point on, my understanding of Marion Barry was that he was a failure. Then when I got here and I got to Prince George's County and there are a few politicians whose style and commitment to community, I admire only a few (laughs) here that I admire. And almost all of them have one thing in common. And they say, Marion Barry got me my first job or Marion Barry you know, he helped me understand politics. Or he, he got me exposed to this. This is why I'm interested in it. And getting to see the impact that one man has had on so many people's lives, whether they're politicians or your regular Black folks, and the reverence that Black folks have for him, you cannot help but respect it when you're in this area, in this, in this part of the community. He had a style I've come to learn that, over time, we as Black elected officials have tried to divorce ourselves from, right? Our understanding of what it means to be a politician is more of like a Barack Obama era, or now, thankfully, kind of like Ayanna Presley, and, you know, where Black Black folks are able to show up a little bit differently than we had to before. But we automatically assume that Black politicians who are trying to get people in their communities' jobs, that they're crony folks, that that's necessarily a bad thing. But in the time when they came up, 
that was a necessary thing and they did it unapologetically. And so I wish certain parts of that were still part of the way that we approached politics, not in ways that are unethical, but just in ways that we were like, I care about Black folks and I'm doing whatever I need to do to make sure my, my community is taken care of, period. My present day example would be probably Milwaukee, where there's Marcelia Nicholson, who's a county supervisor. She's Afro-Latina. David Crowley, who is the county executive. And there's also Mandela Barnes, who's the lieutenant governor there. And I feel like I'm missing someone. But all of them are working hand in hand. If there is, it's not visible to the outside that there's any issues with, you know, turf or feeling like, oh, I don't want them to do this because then I'm going to look bad. Like none of that. (laughs) It seems like they are leading with what they know their communities need first. And it's actually really beautiful to see. They support each other. They are passing policies like they were one of the jurisdictions that passed the racism as a public health threat policies or resolutions early on, I want to say two years ago. But I think they are an area to watch or rather a trio to watch and pay attention to. It seems like there's a trend in certain cities where Black politicians have been successful and the Black political understanding is a bit different. Like the cities you mentioned, it seems to be certain things that are common, but I can't quite put my finger on it. What are your thoughts on this? So when the communities don't have a significant Black population, I do think it's still possible. And I think it's even more important for us to really exercise that muscle of collaboration and building with an agenda in mind, but not necessarily making it public. I went to a number of white schools and in undergrad, I led the Black Student Alliance for two years. So I'm very familiar with what it means to work a little bit more stealthily. Mm. And that is the case in communities where either the Black population is not dominant or if There's a significant Black population, but the people who typically get out to vote are white. And I would say that's kind of the case in Hyattsville. So as I matured and getting more comfortable in sharing my politics and being a bit more transparent about where I stand on things, some folks were surprised because I think in their mind, it was all probably almost like, oh, I forgot she was Black. Because I've had to navigate in that world for so many years. But over the course of the time that I was in office, the council went from one Black woman to predominantly Black council, six out of 11, went from, you know, this town that's considered a sundown town, we're not expecting the government to be responsive to what you need, to not only having a Black mayor, predominantly Black council, we had a Black city administrator had a Black treasurer, a Black chief of police. We were responsible for running this government. But do you know what made it difficult? Was the lack of collaboration among those of us who made up the majority. Where it broke down was in this, what became a battle over turf. It's kind of like, I guess, what people would call 
more frequently crabs in a barrel. I don't really like that phrase, but that's probably what people would describe it as. And it prevented us from moving as quickly as we could on the things that our community needed. And so I think in communities where, you know, like I said, might not be predominantly Black or, you know, the electorate might be predominantly white, it's really important to exercise the muscles of collaboration, getting to the point where you're able to work together, not necessarily need to have credit, but know that at the end of the day, if the goal is being met, that's what's important because we have to sometimes do this stuff and make them wake up and open their eyes. Like, oh, wait a minute, what happened? And I think that is possible, but we have to do it deliberately. Speaking of that, I'm looking at your core values on the ourblockparty.org website. And number nine says, above all, Black people have a responsibility to love each other and accountability is love. So in what ways can our community hold our Black elected officials accountable? First thing, and when we first started, this was a common refrain for me, is that setting the expectations you know, you've probably experienced this in the work environment, right? Where, you know, you don't say what you expect, you're not going to get it. But you at least start with what your expectations are. What's the ask? What are the requirements? What do you want? What do you need? And I think by beginning with saying, okay, we are an organization that is leading with the Black agenda. These are the things that we expect your office or we want your office to work with us on is the beginning of an accountability cycle. Accountability isn't, oh, now it's election day. Well, you should have known what we wanted. That's not accountability because it's working off of assumptions both ways. It's assuming that that person's Black experience is the same as yours. And it's assuming that that person's compassion and care for your Black experience is the same as yours. And so I think we start with being very transparent and open about what it is that our communities want and need. And then, you know, deciding, okay, all right, so how are we going to work together? And at a certain point when it comes to either learning that that party is not someone you can work with or is willing to work on your behalf, then you ramp up what that looks like. That means, okay, well, we need somebody different. Or if it's someone that you think can be pushed, then that means ramping up the organizing power to push those people in the direction that they need to be. I was telling somebody not too long ago about, you know, I I reference the county here because it's where I am, but we are a blue state all around. But especially in the county, pretty much every race is a Democratic primary. Like there's you don't expect a Republican challenger to win. Right. So when anybody's running, the primary is pretty much the deciding race. So whoever wins the primary, that's going to be the person that makes it out. So if the county executive, there are five people running for county executive, five Democrats, whoever wins that primary is the person that's ultimately going to become the county executive. And the turnout in primaries is typically so much lower than the turnout in your general election, whether that's presidential or gubernatorial. So, for example, our county executive won 
I want to say with roughly 80,000 votes, won the primary with roughly 80,000 votes. And when you think about a county of right at 900,000 people, 80,000 is not a lot of folks. It's not a lot of people. So if there were an organization, for example, like Our Black Party, that was able to grow its membership in Prince George's County, for example, to 50,000 people, do you think any candidate for county executive will be able to tell them no? Probably not. So when you try to, you know, bring the mission down to what's attainable, I think 50,000 people is attainable. And I think we, if we were to look at other cities like this, I call them sometimes blue states, black holes. It's like there's a blue state, but I'm still complaining about the same thing. And so when we look at it that way and we start looking at the data and saying, okay, what is our win number as people? You know, candidates look for their win number. All right, so people, what's our win number? How many people can we organize together to the point where it makes it hard for anybody seeking office to tell me no? I'll admit that I'm still learning about local politics. This is a lot going on, right? I think for most people, that's probably the case why so much emphasis may be put on just the national presidential election because local is just so much. If you could tell us maybe across the board, what types of local races or positions should we be focused on that affect our lives in significant ways that we may not even be aware of? Oh my goodness, there are so many. So one of the things that I feel is a very easy lift is looking at your local governments or asking your you know elected officials to look at this um, and finding out what's still on the books in terms of their charter of what is considered an offense, a civil offense that is punishable by either a hefty fine or jail time. So I look back at Hyattsville's charter, for example, and I had us remove any references for a civil municipal infraction that resulted in jail time. Why? Because there's not a single municipal infraction that anyone should be going to jail for. And, and by municipal infraction, I'm talking about something like, let's say if I were going door to door selling Girl Scout cookies with my daughter. Now, most people probably wouldn't have anything to say about it. But let's say I look strange or I look suspicious to someone that's going to result in them calling the police and then they're going to say they're peddling, going door to door selling without a license. And that's punishable by either hefty fine or jail time. They are old relics of, you know, the ways that people try to deal with things instead of trying to approach them from a more restorative in a really just pleasant and community building way. So I would say that's one of the things. Look at the ways your city punishes things. The other thing that was really important for me even here was addressing how we assess fines. So you have a parking ticket. Let's say your meter was a dollar and fifty cents, and you get a parking ticket that's thirty-five dollars. Dang. Okay. Well, after fifteen days, let's say you forget about it. Your payday don't fall on the, like some reason don't fall on the right payday. Now that thirty-five dollars is seventy dollars. All right. If you go 30 days, it's now 140. Is 140 dollars really a reasonable amount to charge for someone who didn't pay a dollar and fifty cents to begin with? No. I would challenge everyone to go through an exercise 
Because one of the things that white folks do, and I hate to be so candid about it, but one of the things that white folks do, I'm, I often find myself sitting thinking, wow, I would never think to call somebody about that. Because we are so accustomed to just dealing with it. So go through your day as if you feel your day should be as carefree and barrier-free as possible. And the things that pop up in your mind as, oh, I wish that wasn't here, or I wish I didn't have to do that, write it down. Sometimes many of those things are things that are within your municipality's control. So it might be this sidewalk here is all, you know, every time I have to walk around the corner because this sidewalk doesn't connect the right way. Or if I'm in a wheelchair, I can't get down this ramp because this ramp doesn't connect. That's something your city should be taking care of. You know, I'm walking the dog. And I'm seeing pet waste everywhere. Nobody's picking up their stuff. Guess what? That's something your city's supposed to be taking care of. Go through your day living like an audacious white person. And then challenge yourself to ask somebody to make it better. I love that. Call it the Karen challenge. Put it on TikTok. (laughs) Seriously. Seriously. Like I, I look at my, I look sometimes, you know, at, the things that happen on my neighborhood listserv. And I'm like, wow, it would never cross my mind to ask somebody to fix that. Yeah, yeah. I'm going through my head right now thinking of all the things just today that I'm like, yeah, I, I can see how I could call somebody about that. So I appreciate you laying that out in, in such a clear way. That's much appreciated. So tell us a bit about what you all are working on right now because i know 2020 obviously there was a big election there's a lot going on just in the year in general this is on the other side of a lot of that so what are you all planning that you are at liberty to share and how can folks get involved if they would like to get involved i am so happy to be on the other side of the 2020 elections mostly because it gives us a little space to breathe and it's not that we were so busy you know, mobilizing for 2020 elections, but more that what we are doing, people have such a great thirst for it that they want to know what's next, what we're going to do next, where y'all at, you know, what's happening. (laughs) So now I think with the election fatigue also setting in, and let's be honest, a little bit of complacency because the previous president is no longer in office, we have a little bit of breathing room. Um, But the things that we are focused on right now are one, making sure just, you know, having a healthy organization so that we have, you know, clear leadership, that we're raising money so that we can do the things that we want to do, like supporting candidates, like researching policy and crafting policy proposals for local elected officials to be able to use elsewhere. Like I said, we've appointed state directors in seven states. We are getting ready to appoint four more because we want to have presence in the states where Black population in this country, either by raw numbers or by percentage of the population, is the greatest. Right now, the seven states where we have state directors are Washington, D.C., which we hope will be the 51st state, Indiana, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, and Michigan. And then the next four states we'll have are Texas, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and New York. And then we'll get to Alabama and Mississippi. Those are the two that we would need to do after that to really make sure we have the presence that we 
desire, um, Alabama, Mississippi, and California. And so we're focusing on growing the membership there and also growing the network of organizations there because we know that the work that we are part of an ecosystem and we cannot do what we're doing by ourselves or in a vacuum. And then on the policy side, our priorities this year are to see through or help push for a passage of For the People Act and significant voting rights legislation this year. And we are also working to craft policy examples so that even if For the People Act does not pass or passes in a very distilled version, that we can pass companion legislation at state or local levels because many of those areas that have home rule or home rule meaning that the cities can decide how they govern themselves. So for example, in Hyattsville, we've passed legislation where 16-year-olds can vote in our local elections, non-citizens can vote in our local elections. And as of this recent election, I put in legislation 2018, so well before COVID, where every resident automatically gets a ballot mailed to their home. So those are things that many cities and you know jurisdictions across the country can decide to do on their own if they pass the policies to do it. So we want to work to help, of course, pass it on the federal level, but help work with those local jurisdictions that um, have the ability to pass significant reforms with their local governments in the event that for the people does not pass. And so still continuing to build, build, build and growing members. We really want folks to get connected with us, to share with us what your priorities are. And so you can join us at www.ourblackparty.org. And I'm also very open to getting emails from folks to share their talents, too, because we are right now pretty much volunteer run. And we are raising money so that we can have staff to be able to support the work that we're doing. So if people have treasures and time that they want to share, we certainly appreciate that as well. And just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most folks do five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, Albany Jones, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Shonda Buchanan, Brianna Lambach, Courtney Morgan, Aquia Tate, Tasha Taylor, Leslie Taylor Grover, and Darren Wallace. Producing and editing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Ivana Tucker. Julian Walker is the executive producer of the podcast. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Thanks for checking us out.